Our focus on Check the Pantry is ingredients, but ingredients are just the starting point. A dinner of a thousand flavors begins with a single food. Today, we take the humble lamb chop as the foundation for a three-course springtime meal. First, we'll decide on the dishes, and then we'll execute them. We'll also take a trip to the wine room at the grog shop, where Patrick Driscoll talks about what he's thinking about when creating a wine pairing for our menu. My name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. tell a lot about the importance a particular culture places on a particular food by the language used to talk about it. Outside Alaska, for instance, salmon can mean just about anything. It can be farmed or it can be wild, it can be Atlantic, or it can be any of the five Pacific species. It could be spawning king or feeder king. It could be gillnetted, trolled, or saned, bled and iced or dumped live into slush ice or RSW from Bristol Bay or Southeast or Nova Scotia or Norway or Cook Inlet. And for most people in most parts of the world, it would be salmon. Woe to the lower 48 server or chef who is not sufficiently aware of the genealogy of the particular fish listed on their menu, for they will hear a long disquisition on the intricacies of salmon from any Alaskan seated in their restaurant, who will then order a steak. For much of the world outside North America, the meat of sheep is subject to similar fine-grained language. There's prime lamb, salt marsh lamb, milk-fed lamb, sucker lamb, spring lamb, hogget, mutton, and that's just in English. It's very important in the rest of the Anglosphere, widely eaten in Europe, Africa, and India, and is probably the most consumed meat in the Islamic world. And it's so minor in importance in the U.S. that the only regulatory requirement to call something lamb here is that it come from a sheep, which can be any age. If the sheep is younger than one year, which is getting old for lamb in lamb-loving cultures, there is the option to have it graded prime or choice, like beef. Lamb was much more popular in the U.S. before World War II, and the usual explanation for the sudden drop-off in lamb consumption in 1946 is canned old mutton fed to American soldiers as part of their rations. When they got back stateside, the story goes, they banned sheep from their tables, and that was that. The American sheep industry shrank, and what was produced for the table began to be grain-finished like beef in an effort to remove any trace of the bracing, gamey flavor that distinguishes even very young lamb. They were domesticated early, around 12,000 years ago, in Mesopotamia, probably from an Asian variety of the wild sheep species called mouflon. Sheep rapidly became critically important to the civilizations surrounding the Mediterranean and spread north through Europe, south through Africa, and east into India. The British took sheep into Australia and New Zealand, and those two nations now account for the vast majority of the world's lamb exports, including to the U.S., while our own domestic sheep production is 10% of what it was before 1946, New Zealand boasts 12 sheep to the human. It's too bad sheep have lost their stature in the States, really. Their wool is useful, sheep's milk cheese is magnificent, and they are an excellent animal for rough country with forage that won't support other livestock. Of course, the cultural appeal of the shepherd here is considerably below that of the cowboy and hipster chefs don't tattoo the different cuts of lamb on themselves the way they do with pigs. So on this spring day, let's celebrate the humble, the forgotten, lamb chop. What we're going to do today is start with a lamb chop and end up with a meal. 
Ingredients make dishes, dishes make menus, menus make a cuisine. The lamb chop is the starting point. And from the lamb chop, I'm gonna get to a dish, a main dish that uses this lamb chop. And from this main dish, I'm gonna look at what, what's missing and what's gonna go with that main dish. And then I'm gonna make a starter out of that. And from this main and this starter, I'm gonna go, well, what's missing with that? and I'm gonna make a dessert. And this is something that you do pretty much every time you sit down and you go, what's for dinner? There are a lot of different ways that you can approach this uh, question. A lot of times you just want to have dinner. You know, this is, not, this is not gonna be a dinner that is complicated. This is not gonna be a full-on fancy deal where we're gonna wow everybody with flash and zoom and zip and zag and this isn't going to be a showstopper of a dinner. This is going to be a real simple, maybe a weekend, couple friends over, three course meal. It's a little beyond, you know, Tuesday night where you just want to get some food in you. But at the same time, you're not, I don't want to spend all day in the kitchen making a huge mess. I don't want to do a fancy dessert that requires a lot of piping bags and, you know, dirtying 8 million dishes and all this kind of stuff. I just want a simple, a simple meal with my lamb chop that will be satisfying. And this is going to be that process. So I'm starting with a lamb chop. This is a lamb loin chop. Uh, lamb loin chops are the ones that look like miniature T-bone steaks. The ones that look like a lollipop are rib chops. And those you usually get in a whole rack. I salted it. I salted it several hours beforehand. You can salt it up to a day before. Um, I generally think it's a better idea to salt meat beforehand. I think the texture's better. I think it retains juices better. There is some scientific evidence that that is the case. Uh, but anecdotally, which a lot of kitchen stuff is, salting meat ahead of time is better. So I've got a lamb chop. What am I gonna do with this? Now, if this were a real fancy meal and I was really pulling out all the stops, I might purely use my imagination and come up with a very elaborate dish that would then require me to go to the store and buy a bunch of stuff that I don't have. But this is more of a simple weekend dish, but not a fancy weekend meal. It's not celebration. It's not, hey, look at me, look how awesome a cook I am. This is, let's all get together, open a couple bottles of wine, have a good meal, talk about, you know, and then gossip about the people that we know or what I always do, which is have very profound intellectual conversations about the state of the world and the ultimate fate of mankind. So to accompany this deep and intellectual and philosophical conversation that we're sure to have, I've got my lamb chop. So I look around, what do I do? Oh, I check the pantry and I go, what goes good with lamb? Well, all sorts of things go good with lamb. Potatoes go good with lamb. But you know, lamb and potatoes to me, that's, that's more like a roast lamb. You know, I want to do a big lamb roast and I want to put the potatoes under it and I want the potatoes to cook in the lamb juices and everything to be this like intense, big, heavy, powerful meal, you know? And this isn't what I'm looking for today. Today, it's, it's kind of a nice day, you know? I mean, we just got a bunch of snow, but still, it's sunny, spring is in the air. What I want is something light. I want something that's not going to... At the end of it, I'm not going to be have to go to bed. I could even have this meal during lunch. This would be an awesome lunch meal. So that's what I'm going to say I'm doing. I'm doing a weekend lunch. Weekend lunches are awesome because you can have a nice big lunch and then you kind of chill after lunch and then you can go do stuff for the rest of the day. So I could do potatoes, but I'm not going to do potatoes. Potatoes are heavier than where I want to go today. Well, what else? There's rice. I could do rice, but I'm not feeling rice today. But you know what I am feeling and what I happen to notice that I had in my pantry was a jar of beans, white beans specifically, and I love white beans, and white beans and lamb are classic together. So now I got lamb, now I got white beans. Now what do I do? Here's something else I have. Maybe you remember in the lemon show a couple months back, I talked about preserving lemons. Well, for that show, I preserved a bunch of lemons, and now I have some preserved lemons that are just hitting their, their usefulness. They've been fermenting a couple of months, and preserved lemons, happen to be a North African staple that happens to be very, very common with lamb. So all of a sudden, not only do I have three primary 
components of a dish, I have a little bit of a direction that I could go in. Now I could, at this point, I could say, you know what, I'm gonna go totally North African. I'm gonna make a super North African dish. I could whip up a bunch of harissa and start thinking about um, all these other uh, accoutrements that could go with it that would be, that would localize it to North Africa. And if I wanted to do that, I could. It would also require a pretty heavy shopping trip. And I know some things about North African cooking, but I don't know a lot about it. I'm not as comfortable in that particular food idiom as I am in other ones. And for this meal in particular, I don't want this to be a heavy learning experience for me. I want to do stuff that I'm pretty comfortable with. I'm going to stay a little, I'm going to stay on the other side of the Mediterranean where I am a little more comfortable and where a lot of my pantry ingredients come from. But I am going to keep that, that Mediterranean thought in my head when I'm picking ingredients here on out. So the next thing that this preserved lemon leads me to is I go, well, I got this preserved lemon. I also have a bunch of preserved lemon juice. Okay, what can I do with that? I could make a vinaigrette. Do I want the vinaigrette to sauce the lamb? Eh, I don't know. I know I've said before that vinaigrette is one of my favorite sauces for just about anything, and it is for just about anything. And one of the few things it's not really my favorite sauce for is red meat. But on the other hand, I can sneak it into something else on the same plate with the meat, and then it becomes an accent as opposed to something that is going directly with the meat. So what I'm gonna do, now I'm suddenly thinking, I've got these beans, instead of cooking them real heavy and to where they're super soft and super mushy like I would a lot of the times if I'm making like a bean stew, I'm just gonna cook them till they're just done. Till they're just solid, but they still have a, a nice round beany texture. And I'm gonna make basically a, a warm bean salad with them. Now I've got the idea of a warm bean salad with a preserved lemon vinaigrette. Okay, well, what else do we need with that? Well, I think it could use some sort of a vegetable involved in that. So I'm gonna go with the ever beautiful, ever easy to cook chard. All right, now I've got a white bean salad with a preserved lemon vinaigrette and chard. Anything else I need? Let's give it some shallots because everything needs shallots. Everything needs an allium whether it's shallots, whether it's onions, whether it's garlic. I'm gonna leave the garlic out of this one though, although I do want some garlic, but I'm gonna reserve that thought because I still have a starter to make. Now I've got a lamb chop, a loin lamb chop, simply done. I'm going to sear it in a pan and I'm gonna treat it like I do a lot of red meat when I do like that. I'm gonna do it real simple. It's just gonna be some salt and some pepper. Maybe I'll, get, maybe I'll throw something else in later, but for the most part, it's gonna be that. And then I'm gonna have this little warm bean salad of beans, chard, preserved lemon vinaigrette, and some shallots. I could, if I was so inclined, and if I was gonna make this a one-dish meal, I might consider adding a grain to that, couscous or rice or one of the more esoteric grains, I might consider that. But for this, because I'm doing a whole three-course meal, um, it's really easy when you start doing multiple courses to put too much on a plate. So I think that the vinaigrette, the warm bean salad with the beans and the chard and the lamb chop are gonna play very nicely with each other. They'll all be fairly simple to make. Um, there's no super complicated cooking techniques involved. There's a minimum amount of work at the end so I can spend more time with the people that I'm cooking this thing for than in the kitchen making a huge mess. And I can do a lot of it early, like cooking the beans. Okay, so what are the flavor and textural components of this? And this will tell me what kind of things I'll be looking for in my starter. So the beans themselves, these are not mushy beans. These are, these are gonna be nice and firm beans. And the lamb is obviously gonna have a seared outside with a nice soft texture inside because I'm gonna cook it to about medium rare. And the chard will be a little bit crunchy because I'm only gonna saute it real briefly. There's gonna be the nice brightness, the super lemony lactic acid flavor of the preserved lemons. There's gonna be the rich meatiness of the lamb. There's gonna be some saltiness in the beans because beans need to be heavily salted. And then the beans themselves will have that kind of an earthy component. So there's a couple things that aren't quite gonna be there. So now I'm looking for a starter to complement that. So what do I do? Again, I look around, I see what I have. And in my refrigerator, I buy just about every week, I buy a chicken. And I buy a whole chicken. Some weeks I roast the whole thing. Most weeks I just part it out and we'll eat 
you know, a breast or a thigh or whatever at night. And these whole chickens, one nice thing about them is they come with giblets. And for some reason, factory chickens don't always come with a complete package of giblets. Today, I was lucky it did, and I got a liver. So I have a chicken liver, and I love chicken liver. So now I'm thinking, I got this chicken liver that otherwise, I, I mean, I could fry it with some eggs or something in the morning, but let's do something a little more interesting with it. I got a single chicken liver, and liver has that beautiful, awful flavor that actually sort of slides neatly in with lamb, which also has just a, a touch of gaminess. You know, it's something, it's a little more, it's still, American lamb is still pretty mild, particularly when compared to some of the more flavorful lambs that you'll get in, for example, in Australia or in, in uh, the UK or in Europe in general. But it still has more of a distinct flavor than beef. And it's a flavor that, that goes well with, that, uh, with the awful qualities and the, the funk of chicken liver. But I do want to tame that a little bit. And I don't really want to serve, I've only got one liver too. And it's hard to make one liver stretch between the three people that you know, I envision this serving. How do you make liver stretch? The easiest way in the world, you make chicken liver pate. I've got a little chicken stock, which will go into the pate. So now I'm like, okay, now this is coming together. I also happen to have a loaf of bread, plain white bread, white sandwich bread, Pullman bread that I made because I do that. But you can certainly use regular store-bought white bread too. And it's springtime. I'm starting some seeds. And one of the seeds that we're starting is mustard greens. Now, some of the little trays in the six packs have more than one plant. Right about now, I'm starting to thin down to one plant in each uh, tray. And baby mustard greens are tender enough to where you can eat them, but they also have a really pungent mustard flavor. So you know what? I'm gonna use some of my thinned out baby mustard greens on my chicken liver. Now I've got the rich smoothness of the liver and I've got a nice crunchy uh, piece of bread that I'm gonna wind up making a crouton out of. I've got this mustard green as well, which is really spicy and an intense mustard flavor. And then, you know, I'm kind of like, well, I'm already in North African mindset a little bit. Like I said, we're not making a whole North African dinner, but I'm already kind of in that mindset a little bit with the preserved lemon. So why not throw a couple of dates into this starter? So I've got a starter that's gonna be chicken liver pate, a little piece of toast, baby mustard greens, and some dates. Now I got two dishes. Last thing I wanna do is dessert. And again, I don't want this to be a big production dessert. As fun as, though, as those are, I don't feel like making a huge mess. I don't feel like going through getting out the mixing bowls and getting out this and getting out that and sifting and measuring and all this stuff. I want a really simple dessert. I just want something that I can plop down on the table and we can all eat and it's not gonna be too sweet and it's not gonna be too rich. And so I'm sort of thinking a little along the lines, uh, since I've just added these dates, I'm like, man, I'm still in North African mode again. I'm not making a North African dinner, but I'm kind of in that mindset. And I go, you know, almonds. And then I go, almonds, oh man. Well, what else, what do I have? I don't have any almonds. I'm gonna have to go buy some almonds, but I don't really want to buy anything else. Well, you know what else I have is I have some farmer's cheese that I bought a while back. I keep it around. It's a soft, white, fresh cheese. It's kind of like Chev, except it's made with cow's milk. You can get it with sheep's milk in certain places where they have a lot of sheep. Sadly, we aren't in one of those because sheep's milk, uh, this kind of sheep's milk cheese is one of my favorite cheeses ever. Love this stuff. Unfortunately, we don't have it. And it would go really well with the lamb. But you can't always get what you want. Even though Alaska really is like prime sheep country. Hint, hint. So I got almonds. So now I'm thinking almonds and I'm thinking this cheese. And I really like cheese as a dessert, um, as part of a dessert course, you know, because sometimes you don't want something that's sweet at the end of a meal. You may have a little bit of sweet, but cheese has this sort of wonderful way of kind of calming the palate and mellowing you out and putting you in a good mood. But it does, this dessert, it does need to have some kind of sweetness. And so I'm thinking almonds and I'm thinking cheese and it just kind of hits me. 
I love peanut brittle. Why not almond brittle? So almond brittle it is. Almond brittle is gonna be the dessert. So the meal that I'm gonna be making over the next little bit is gonna start with chicken liver pate on toast with baby mustard greens and chopped dates. The second course, the main, is going to be a seared loin chop of lamb with a white bean salad with chard and a preserved lemon vinaigrette. And dessert is gonna be fresh farmer's cheese and almond brittle. And now I'm hungry, so let's get going. Well, my first thought would be this actually looks really good and I'd like to eat it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but right off the bat, I like the fact that you're starting with a pate. I think that gives you some really fun options for how you start the meal wine-wise. Um, lamb chops are always delicious and pair really well with wine. The one thing that jumps out at me there is preserved lemon, which that salty and acidity can, can subvert wine a little bit if you're not careful. Um, and then the farmer's cheese for dessert. This actually, right off the bat, puts me in a place of wanting to one of the things I like doing when I'm putting a wine dinner together is to kind of subvert the standard idea of how things should progress. And so one thing I really like doing is starting with something sweet and ending with something bubbly, um, which is actually a very French thing to do, but a, a, just uncommon here and everybody thinks, oh, we always start with champagne. And most champenois that I know really hate that notion. <laughs> um, they really want their, their wines to be food wines. Um, and champagne and cheese works really, really well together. So my first thought with the chicken liver pate and I mean dates and mustard greens um, would be to go with something like a late harvest Tokai. Um, you could also certainly go like a sauterne root or even like Spätlese or Riesling, something that's got some weight, but that, that sweetness really helps with any kind of liver, really awful in general. Um, but I, I'm particularly fond of using, uh, we have a wine that is not quite as Zutokai, uh, but it, it's a Hungarian off-dry wine, kind of the equivalent of an Auslese-level Riesling from Germany, um, and it's affordable, <laughs> so it's something you can actually pour, and it's not so overwhelmingly sweet that you're going to either, one, crush the food or, 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 or start to mess with people's palates to move on. Uh, with the lamb chop, I mean, the white beans, preserved lemon, they all kind of take me towards Northern Italy or Provence in terms of the flavors that are there. And I, I always really like the expression, I know it's more of a, a chef's expression, but that what grows together goes together. And so often that's kind of my first thought is where, where do these ingredients come from and what do they drink there? What do they make there? So. Right off the bat, my first thought would be something like a really nice Barbaresco or Nebbiolo uh, from, from Piedmont or something from like the Languedoc or Minervois, uh, maybe not a Grenache heavy, but a Syrah heavy based uh, Rhone style blend. And both of those give you a gaminess. Um, both are not overwhelmingly heavy. And I think in this dish, if you did something like California Cab or Aussie Shiraz, you're gonna that that oak is gonna really overwhelm the subtlety of what are really beautiful ingredients, and so I think something that's a little bit more restrained is what jumps to mind for me. Particularly, I think Barbaresco would be dynamite, um, and then with farmer's cheese, you know, here's one where I think knowing your audience makes a big difference as well. Because I think with smoked almonds and, and the richness of that cheese, this is the one where if you have an audience that is very specifically red wine heavy, and that is most of the audience in, in Alaska, really it's most of the audience in America, you could choose here to go for that big, rich, heavy style red. Personally, like I said, champagne is what I would like to do. Some, uh, something that has some weight and some smokiness to it. Uh, maybe a rosé. Or a, or a Pinot-based true champagne that, that, that does have that richness and smokiness. Um, and I like that because then you're finishing on a lighter note. I always, I, I know port is a classic way to end a, a dinner, but I always find when you have those really heavy, high in alcohol wines at the end, I just wanna go to sleep. <laughs> 
And, and when you finish with something light, I mean, uh, Moscato is not what I would do here, but something light and bubbly or, or just slightly sweet, but not overly alcoholic. You can sit and sip on it and the, the night continues and you get to continue a conversation and it, it doesn't put everybody into a trance. Um, so that's the way that I would go. But again, it would very much depend on my audience. If I was doing this in a restaurant, a big group of folks that I didn't know, I would probably actually opt to have another red wine at that point in time, just knowing that that's what makes people happy. Um, if we were going just domestic with the, with the pate right at the beginning, I would. I still think that I would. I would lean towards something sweet, maybe something like um, Quadi in California makes a really cool orange muscat uh, that that's not overly heavy again and has some sweetness but doesn't go over the top. Or Washington State has some absolutely out of this world rieslings um, that are in that probably more like a cabinet level, so off dry but not not super sweet um and I, I think those would work really really well um for the lamb again i think i'm probably leaning towards something that can offer a little bit of gaminess um and there i'm probably thinking about syrah from paso Robles, um especially one that's not overly oaked and i think paso does that particularly well um a roan style blend like tablas creek uh would work really well um, or I think a Bordeaux-style blend, but that's done in an old-school California style. Not the over-extracted, over-oaked, but one that really does resemble Bordeaux and that it's got some earthiness. Um, it's got really good tannic structure, but isn't overblown and sweet to where it kind of carries away the food. And then for dessert, you know, again, here I'm, I'm going off audience. If if it was me, Schramsberg, I think, is one of the best wineries in, in the country, not just for sparkling wine, but for any wine. And I would lo still love to start or to finish with something bubbly. But if not knowing the audience and if it was just going for a general palate, I probably at that point in time would pick either a Washington State Merlot or California Cabernet, something big and rich and extracted and kind of crowd-pleasing but that cheese, without having tasted it, I, I feel pretty confident that cheese has enough grip to it to stand up to a wine with that much weight. Honestly, I would be very happy to sit down to either of those dinners. <laughs> the first thing that we are going to make is the pate. And this is a good place to start because it needs to chill down a little bit before we serve it. It's actually gonna be best at room temperature. So I've got one liver and I'm going to chop it fairly fine. If I was making a lot of pate, I would probably do it in the food processor. That's usually what I do if I'm making a significant amount. But I'm only making a tiny amount today. And so I'm not gonna go through all the trouble of getting out my food processor and because I, I don't want to clean a bunch of pots and pans, you know? So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make my pate in my mortar and pestle. And I can do that because a pate is an emulsion, at least a chicken liver pate, also known as chicken liver mousse. It's an emulsion. We talked a little bit about emulsions uh, during the asparagus episode. And a pate is just a different kind of emulsion. So I've chopped my liver and I have a little bit of chicken stock and I'm gonna poach my liver in this chicken stock with a little bit, just a little bit of salt and an even smaller, very, 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 very minuscule amount of Instacure number one, Prague powder number one, pink salt, not Himalayan pink salt, sodium nitrite. And that will give my chicken liver pate, a little bit of a pinkish hue because it's pretty. You don't want to overcook them because then they get that weird like gritty texture. So you just want to barely cook it till it's just a little bit pink inside and then we'll mash it. And you know what? I have some garlic here. I'm going to mash the garlic real quick and throw it in with the chicken liver just to poach for just a second. This is one clove 
of garlic. Just gonna smash it. It'll get mushed up for real once I mash this in the mortar and pestle. Just got it poaching in a little bit of chicken stock in a covered pan. It's starting to get pretty pink. Kind of tell it needs just another minute or so. You just want it to be just cooked on the inside. Just barely, barely cooked. Now I've got my liver and my mortar and pestle and I'm gonna go ahead and pound it down pretty fine. Now, if I was making a full on, I, would, I want to impress everybody, this is gonna be the greatest pate ever pate. When I finished with it, I would run it through a tammy or a drum sieve and it looks like a snare drum. Uh, it's a piece of metal. Um, it's a three part piece of metal. There's a top and a bottom and then there's a screen that goes in the middle and the top part clamps onto the bottom and that tightens the screen and you use it when you wanna strain something that's not a liquid. Um, you can use it to strain liquids too, but what it's for is you set it over uh, a bowl or a surface or whatever and you can scrape across it. Uh, it's flat. So you can scrape across it with like a bench scraper and it will cut whatever semi-solid or semi-liquid, as the case may be, food through it. So you can use it for like pastry creams, uh, you can use it for pâtés, you can use it for all sorts of things. Um, you can use it for mashed potatoes actually, it makes really good mashed potatoes. For all sorts of things that you need to apply some pressure to to get fibers out. Because there are gonna be, uh, some fibers in this pate. So we're gonna call this a rustic chicken liver pate. Uh, if I was gonna call it chicken liver mousse, I would definitely make a point of running it through a tammy. Because to me, mousse means it should be absolutely smooth. So I'm gonna grind some pepper in here. I told you I had some starts going. And some of my starts are Thai basil. I have Thai basil and I have regular basil going. We all know what regular basil tastes like. Thai basil is kind of like regular basil with an edge of fennel. And I happen to like fennel very much. So much so that I almost went out and bought some Pernod, which is a fennel liqueur to put in my chicken liver pate. And then I was like, man, that'd be expensive. And I also have all this Thai basil upstairs. So let me use that. Because use what you got. When you're looking to make some dinner, always check the pantry. Dun, dun, dun. So I'm throwing a few leaves of Thai basil in there. Chicken liver mousse like this, it's always nice if it has an herbal component. Um, a lot of times I'll use parsley, but today we're using this. And the other ingredient that is important is some fat, specifically some butter. The secret to excellent pate, like the secret to excellent mashed potatoes, is a lot of butter. I'm using about the weight of butter that I have in chicken livers. I kind of estimated it because this is a casual one. Like I say, you know, if I was making, if I was making a little more of a showstopper, then I would be a little bit more precise. But this is a real casual weekend, real simple. It's a country pate. It's a rustic pate. I'm emulsifying my butter into my pate. It's making a nice smooth paste that, like I say, it is a little, a little chunky. The longer I grind it, the less chunky it will get. But once you add the butter, you don't wanna grind it for too long because it's an emulsion. If you get it too hot and the butter starts to melt and the butter starts to separate, your emulsion can break and your pate can turn gritty. I'm gonna add just a tiny bit more chicken stock. One thing I did not mention last week, and last week, if you're listening to these out of order, is, uh, was the asparagus show where I talked about emulsified sauces. And one thing that I realized, basically too late to, to add anything about, was that I should have mentioned that we, we, we talk about fat and its importance in the emulsion all the time, and we get kind of obsessed with it, you know, like the amount of oil or, in a mayonnaise or the amount of butter in a hollandaise, the amount of yolk that it takes to emulsify all this stuff. And one thing we forget is that the water is actually as, in, the water phase of an emulsion is actually as important. And if an emulsion doesn't have enough water, it can break. If you're making a mayonnaise and it starts to break, sometimes it actually, if you add a little bit of water, that will be enough 
to allow the, uh, the emulsion to happen. You know, it's possible that it's just starved for water, basically. Adding a little liquid, wine is real common. You can use regular water. I'm using chicken stock today. Adding a liquid to a chicken liver pate helps it stay spreadable. If you want it to be spreadable at room temperature, it often helps to add a little bit more liquid than you ordinarily would. As long as it can stay in an emulsion, that will soften the pate. You know, if it's if you add enough liquid, it can actually stay fairly soft at, at uh, in the refrigerator. You can take it right out. You know, a lot of times if you only make it with butter, a lot of times when you pull it out of the fridge, it's pretty hard. If you add a little more liquid, whatever kind of liquid you want, it will very often stay soft. All right, so I've got my little mortar and pestle filled with pate. I'm gonna taste it. Mmm. Ooh, ooh. There's a lot of garlic. The Thai basil really, really comes through nicely. It just kind of sits there and gives it this vibrant sort of flavor. It doesn't taste fennelly once you add it in the pate. It combines with all the other ingredients to just give it this nice, round, beautiful flavor. That's really good, actually. Uh, I don't think it needs anything else. So I've got my pate made. I'm gonna set that aside and I'm gonna put it in the fridge just so it chills down a little bit. And then we'll get working on the next thing. And the next thing I'm gonna make is my almond brittle. So brittle is a candy. It's basically, it's almost just a caramel, except there's butter and then there's baking soda. And I'll get to what the baking soda is for once we get to putting the baking soda in. We're gonna start by cooking some caramel to the hard crack stage, which is 305 to 310 degrees Fahrenheit. And we covered making caramel in the apple show where we made a caramel sauce with cream and caramel. Today we're gonna to be making brittle, which is caramel, butter, and baking soda. And we're gonna be making almond brittle. Now I'm not actually using regular roasted almonds. One thing is I was at the store getting my almonds. The only thing I had to buy that I didn't have once I bought the lamb chops and decided what this was gonna be. The only thing I had to buy was the almonds and the dates and the chard. Everything else came out of my pantry. So I was in the almond aisle and I was gonna get regular almonds. And then I was like, you know, they had smoked almonds. And I said to myself, that might be a really interesting note to go with the caramel and the cheese. So this is gonna be salty, smoky almonds and sweet caramel with its kind of bitter edge so bittersweet caramel, and then this nice, simple, mild, soft, creamy cheese. It's gonna be some really nice flavors and textures all playing together. But it's not gonna be overly sweet. You know, I have a hard time personally, when I, you know, when I, when I really enjoy like a big chunk of, you know, a butter cake with a, with a thick cream cheese or a buttercream frosting, I really like that stuff in like the afternoon, maybe with a cup of coffee. But at the end of a meal, when I'm already a little bit full, I have a hard time really wanting to eat something that's super sugary and super rich. I just want something simple and light that's got kind of a sweet edge, but is mostly just gonna sort of settle down everything that I just ate. I like desserts that aren't excessively sweet. I like sweet stuff on their own. So I'm making caramel exactly like I made it for the apples show in a dry pan, overheat, and I'm really not making a lot here. Maybe a half a cup of sugar total. So this isn't gonna make a ton of caramel. It's not gonna make a ton of brittle. Just gonna make a little bit, just enough for my three person meal. And I do have a sheet pan ready to go with uh, some parchment paper that I can pour this out when it's done because then once I finish it off, it needs to cool. All right, starting to melt. You can do this with raw almonds or any raw nut, really. You can make brittle out of any nut. Um, if you start with raw, just start cooking the nuts at the beginning, and it'll actually, it's kind of better because it'll flavor the caramel as you're making it. If you're starting with toasted nuts or nuts that have already been cooked somehow, add them at the very end. Otherwise, you can burn them, and you don't want to burn your nuts. Okay, I got a pretty thin layer. Starting to get dark. Just about all melted. I'm gonna go ahead and temp it. Remember, we're taking this to the 
hard crack stage of candy making, which is 305 to 310, and we are well there. So I'm gonna pull that off. I'm gonna drop in my almonds. I'm just gonna roll them around until they're good and coated. And this is just a handful of almonds. You want, you want it to be, when you're done with it, you're gonna want it to be kind of more almond than caramel. Don't be afraid to add some. These I'm adding whole. It is also perfectly acceptable. And in fact, it might even be better to add them chopped. And then now what I'm doing is I'm adding some butter, a pretty healthy couple tablespoons of butter. I want this to be fairly buttery. So now I've got kind of a butterscotchy soft caramel. And now I'm going to add just a little pinch, not very much, maybe an eighth of a teaspoon of baking soda. And the baking soda is gonna cause everything to foam up just a little bit as it sets up. And as it foams up, it'll give it It'll give the brittle that characteristic brittle structure because if you don't use the baking soda, then it, it's more like a hard, like a caramel candy. And we don't want it to be like a caramel candy. We want it to be like a brittle. So as it cools, the baking soda will cause bubbles to form and it will give it that lovely crunchy brittle texture. Never forget. Caramel is much easier to clean than you would think it is. Just put some water in the pan and let it sit and it'll eventually dissolve. That is our dessert pretty much done. All the hard part anyway. And now we can get on with the rest of it. So for our next trick, it's time to get everything ready. Get all of my mise en place ready for making my warm white bean salad. And this being Alaska, some of this chard is not very nice. That's how it is. Get rid of it. So I am doing a simple chop chop on the chard. The nice thing about chard for dishes like this is that unlike a lot of the darker leafy greens, you don't have to blanch it. You don't have to cook it at all, steam it at all beforehand because it's not tough and it doesn't have a lot of bitterness that you need to sort of just cook out of it. Like generally, you know, I find like if you try to straight saute like a collard green, uh, they tend to be kind of tough and chewy. And also there's a bitterness there that if you don't blanch them first, uh, it's a little off-putting. It's not my favorite. Mustard greens, mustard greens really depends on the mustard greens. Turnip greens are kind of like that. Kale, you, kale I find you got to cook beforehand or else it's just, it's a little overpowering. But chard can go right into the saute pan. So now I've got my chard ready. I'm going to dice my shallot, or as they say in Britain, my shallot. So that's my shallot. Now I'm going to dice my preserved lemon. Oh man, it's very intense smelling. So preserved lemon, it tastes, there's a, there's a tartness to it, but it mostly tastes in, intensely lemony. You know, it, it doesn't have that like tooth biting acidity. And I'm not, I actually did go and I looked and I tried to find for sure so that I would be able to say this with pure authority. I was not able to sufficiently confirm this to be able to say it with 100% knowledge. So if there's a food scientist out there listening who knows for sure, maybe they could talk to me. Because what I really suspect is going on in the preserved lemons is that the citric acid in the lemons is in some way being converted by the bacteria that are doing the fermentation into lactic acid because it has that, that buttery, milky kind of tang that lactic acid bacteria produce, you know, that a, that a lactic fermentation has, where it's milder, it's not biting, it's more of like a real mellow acidity. And there is like kind of a buttery note that's, it's, it's a little odd if you haven't 
really experienced it. It's lemon with this, a different quality, a different texture of tartness. So one thing that, that winds up happening to me a lot is I sort of wind up, I collect spices kind of, and I wind up with sort of random spices. When I do, I order most of my spices in bulk from an online place, and I order the ones that I use a lot and a fairly large amount because then they'll be cheaper. And then I'll buy like little smaller bits of stuff that I've never used before, but I'm curious about. So one thing that I have today and I've decided that I'm going to use this is some Aleppo pepper, which is a chili pepper that is real common in the Middle East. Aleppo is a city in uh, Syria. And Aleppo pepper is a, it's, it's a red pepper. You know, it's not like vastly different from say, you know, a regular crushed red pepper flakes, but there's a real, there's a real fruitiness and a lot of top end notes to it that are really nice. And I've found that I, I like using it as like a finishing pepper at the end of stuff. So I'm going to sprinkle a little bit of that on there. So I've got my chard chopped up. I've got my shallot chopped up. I've got my preserved lemon. Uh, this is about half of a lemon, half of a preserved lemon rind. And here's what my procedure is going to be. I am going to start by making my bean salad and it'll be warm, and then I'm gonna sear my lamb. And so let's get to that. First thing I'm going to do is I got my pan all ready to go. I'm gonna dump a nice glug of olive oil in it. I'm gonna be pretty generous with it because the olive oil, this olive oil will form the basis of the vinaigrette. And I'm gonna start with my shallots. My shallots are coming along very nicely. So I'm gonna dump in my chard. And I'm just gonna go with the chard just until it wilts a little bit. A little more salt. Always add just a pinch of salt with every, every addition to the pan and you will always have the proper amount of salt. Well, not always, but it helps. The next thing I'm gonna add are my beans. These are white beans, very simple, plain old, the El Cheapo white beans from the grocery store. Nothing fancy about them. I soaked them overnight in salted water and I cooked them for about an hour or 15 minutes earlier this morning with water with more salt in it because if there's one thing that I hope that I can persuade you, it is that the whole myth that you should never salt your water when you're cooking beans is a total myth. Always salt your water when you're cooking beans. Salt your water when you're soaking the beans. Salt your water all day long. You will be rewarded with delicious beans and not boring, nasty, bland, mushy garbage. Now, I don't wanna cook these beans super long. I just wanna heat them through. And we're just about there. They do not take very long to heat through. And the next thing that I can add is my chopped up preserved lemon. And I'm just gonna heat this through now. Just a few tosses in the pan. And this is very pretty now. The white beans have taken on a little bit of a pinkish color from the, the charred stems. And the whole thing is very nice looking. Little flecks of green, flecks of red, little chunks of yellow lemon. It's very festive. So I'm gonna put this aside and I'm also gonna pour in my reserved lemon juice from my preserved lemons. And you know what, I'm gonna turn this back on and I'm just gonna reduce this lemon juice just a little bit. Mmm, oh, it smells so good. And now, all right, main event, got my lamb. I'm gonna pat it dry for maximum sear. This is eh, right about an inch, I would say, thick. And we are just gonna be shooting for medium rare here. You can use whatever pan you would like. I am using today a carbon steel pan. It's a real cheap one, I've had it for years. Uh, I like carbon steel. I prefer it to cast iron for one reason. And that reason is that it's really, really easy to season. If your seasoning gets damaged on these, which admittedly 
carbon steel seasonings are easier to damage than cast iron seasonings, but once they're damaged, they take about five minutes to get them back. You squirt a little bit of oil in the bottom of a, of a pan that you've gotten hot. You get a pair of tongs and a paper towel and keep running along the bottom until it starts to turn black. Maybe do it again. If it's, uh, if it's real, if you're down to bare metal, do it again and you're back to being good to go. I can cook eggs in this pan, no problem, and they won't stick as long as I keep up on the seasoning. And it's a seasoning that you can abuse. You know, if you scratch it, it's fine, it doesn't matter. The pan's all metal, you can stick it in the oven, you can do whatever you wanna do with it. These things, you beat them, you warp them. I love them. I love carbon steel pans. They are my favorite for any kind of searing. And honestly, it gets the most work out of just about anything that I own. And while I'm on the subject of favorite kitchen tools, what I'm going to be using to turn my lamb chop is the fish turner. And they are by far the finest utensil for flipping things in pans around of anything. I highly recommend them. Okay, so what I'm doing with my lamb chop today is I learned, and you may have learned this too, that what you're supposed to do with a steak or a piece of meat like this that you're cooking is leave it on one side for a long time and then flip it over and leave it on the other side for a long time and then it's done. I have since been persuaded that it is much better to flip your steak repeatedly. There are fairly complex reasons why this turns out to be better. The short version is A, it, it keeps uh, the meat from steaming itself, you know, sometimes particularly when you're cooking a bigger piece of meat in the pan, some of the stuff, some of the, the, the parts of it on the inside, the water condenses under the steak and goes up and steams it rather than browning it. So if you constantly flip the steak and keep it moving in the pan, then that water doesn't just go underneath it and, and uh, steam the steak. It actually evaporates and then the steak will brown. And brown in steaks, is one of the two good colors, the other of which is red. The other advantage to it is that it slows down the cooking of the meat uh, underneath the surface, so that instead of getting like a big gray well-done strip and then a little strip of red, uh, correctly done stuff, and then another big gray strip, because you flip it constantly, you wind up with a smaller band of the grayer, overcooked, um, well-done stuff. It's a fairly small point, but I prefer it. And this is not gonna take very long. Lamb never does. Another thing that I usually do is try to focus a little more sear time on one side. So usually whichever side I start with, I try to get a little nicer. Okay, <laughs> everything's cool, <laughs> got everything squared away. This happens sometimes in unfamiliar kitchens. All right, the very last bit of cooking that I need to do while my little lamb chops rest is to toast my crouton for my chicken liver pate. And I'm just going to toast it in my skillet with a little drop of some olive oil. Don't want to smoke it. Don't want to hit the smoke point. Don't want to go through that again today. You can toast this in the oven. Uh, I'm going to do it just in a skillet because it's a lot quicker. All right. The last little thing I need to do is get out my mustard greens and consider how I'm going to do them. I actually think that I'm gonna leave them whole. They're really nice looking. I could chop them up, but these are so nice and this will uh, sort of emphasize the youngness and the freshness of these baby greens. So I'm gonna leave them whole and I'm gonna attractively arrange them on top of my chicken liver pate. And I'm not going to smear my pate 
down. I'm going to leave it a little chunky. I want to leave a little texture, a little height, a little visual interest to it. Oh, I need my dates. I almost forgot my dates. I think two dates is perfect. Do I want to leave them whole or halved? No, I want to chop them. And I think rather than piling them on, I'm just going to drop chunks of dates around. And now I'm just arranging my mustard greens on top of my pate and on top of my crouton. And I think that will be quite a delicious and successful little dish. So chicken liver pate on a crouton with baby mustard greens and dates. Now I've got my warm bean salad with chard. And this, <laughs> the one thing about beans is it, it's real hard to plate them nice. They're always gonna look like beans, but that's okay. I'm going to plate them kind of asymmetrically in sort of a semi-triangular shape. And I'm gonna lay my lamb right on top of them. And give my lamb a little fleur de sel and a little pepper and a little of my Aleppo pepper. And that I'm just gonna kind of sprinkle all over the white bits of the plate, except clean the rim. And I've got a very simple dish that is warm white bean salad with chard and preserved lemon vinaigrette and a lamb chop. And finally, I have my farmer's cheese. And I'm going to make, drop a couple of little chunks of it. And each chunk will get a chunk of brittle. And there we go. Smoked almond brittle and farmer's cheese. A simple three course dinner, starting with just a lamb chop. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Patrick Driscoll was recorded in the wine room at the Grog Shop. The cooking was recorded at Station 12. For information about Station 12, call 907-235-4226 or email info at station12.com. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebene. This is the third episode of the spring 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.